Well, if you have a Bible, take it and turn to that passage that was just read in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. Uh, we are um, continuing our series now in 1 John. We're entering back into it. Uh, we've been away for a while from Advent and Christmas tide and some of uh, January, and now we're entering back in. And as we enter back in, we enter back into these verses in John chapter 3, verses 4. Through 10. They're not easy verses. I mean, John, he doesn't mince words, does he? Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now, that's pretty hard. No one who abides in him continues to sin, John is saying. And in case you missed it, in case you didn't get the point, look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, or more straightforwardly, no one born of God commits a sin. But John will go so far as to say that the one who is born of God cannot sin in verse 9. What are we to do with 1 John 3? I've mentioned the story before. I was a freshman, I was at Auburn, I was walking out onto the quad, and the street preacher told me that he had not sinned for some 25 years since he had been born of the Holy Spirit. And I must admit, there is something about that that I admire. And that is this, he, it's not that he's not reading his Bible, He's trying to take his Bible seriously, and he's trying to take 1 John 3 seriously. Of course, 1 John 3 just doesn't seem to line up with our experience, but, but I'm convinced that we need to read our experience in light of the Bible and not the Bible in light of our experience. But I'm not sure that he takes this experience seriously enough. I got an email a couple months ago from a professing Christian who had relapsed into addiction. And that relapse caused a deep existential crisis and struggle with them. Where do I stand with God? The person writes, the incident happened nearly a month ago, but I still sometimes worry about my relationship with God. And wonder if God's patience has run out. Over the past month, I've struggled with knowing if I'm saved or not. I've seen so many idols in my life. And many of us can relate. And what do we do with that experience in light of 1 John 3, verse 6? No one abides in him, sins. And the one who sins has neither seen him nor known him. But what do we do with 1 John 3 in light of the things that John has already written to us? Like back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 8, you'll remember John says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That if we claim to have not sinned, verse 10, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And so wait a second, 
wait a second. So in chapter 1, John says that those who deny their sin cannot abide in God. And in chapter 3, he says those who abide in God cannot sin. What do we do with this? Well, it's worth noting from the outset that 1 John 3 is difficult. It is difficult. It is difficult existentially in light of our own lives. It is difficult exegetically, that is, interpretation-wise. And so when we come to it, we, we have a lot of questions. I may not be able to answer every question this morning, but I do hope to shed some light on this passage and that it might in turn shed some light on our lives. Most of all, though, that it might shed some light on the light, Jesus Christ himself. But as, as, we, as we look for God to do that for us, I need to pray. Let me pray. God, I do pray that as we open your word in a text that is difficult and challenging in many ways, that you would challenge us as you mean for it to challenge us and encourage us as you mean for it to encourage us and that your word by your spirit would be all that you mean for it to be for us. That is, that we might experience Jesus Christ through it who is your word and our life and light. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, John writes that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And if we're going to understand what John means when he says that, we first need to start by asking, what does John mean by sin? How does John depict sin here? Now, sin can be depicted many ways in the Bible. Most of the time, I think when we think about sin, we think about um, transgression or rule-breaking. Uh, that is, to cross a known boundary. Sin is breaking the law, breaking a rule. And uh, the Bible certainly can depict sin that way. It uses a specific word for that. It's called trespass or transgression. It's to cross a known boundary. But that's simply one aspect of sin. The, the depiction of sin in the Bible is much more complex and multifaceted than just transgression. Uh, broadly, most broadly perhaps, sin is missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark of what God intended us to be. Sin is not living up to all God meant for us to be when he created us. Sin is uh, not being who we were meant to be, not living up to our potential. And yes, transgression is an aspect of sin, definitely. But the aspect that John focuses on here is lawlessness. Look, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, when John says lawlessness, he's not talking about rule-breaking. He's not talking about transgression. Notice that he does not say sin is law-breaking. He says sin is lawlessness. And there's a distinction. In the New Testament, when it uses the word lawlessness, lawlessness most often is associated with open rebellion and opposition against God, an open rebellion and opposition, a hostility towards God that is characterized by the last days, the end of time. In other words, lawlessness is eschatological rebellion. 
It is to oppose God and his saving purposes in Jesus Christ. Now I wonder what images come to mind. Lawlessness, open rebellion, open hostility and opposition against God. Well, maybe you think of uh, some of the demeanor that's characterized the new atheist. Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens. Or maybe you think of the anti-religious campaigns that went on under Lenin and Stalin. I think of that movie Amadeus. When Salieri takes the crucifix off his wall. And as he is placing it in the fire, he says, From now on we are enemies, you and I, God. Because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you, I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. I will ruin your incarnation. Open rebellion, hostility towards God. That's maybe what I think about. When I think about lawlessness. But most of us, we don't consider ourselves or those that we're seeing, we, most of us don't consider sin, our sin, to be lawlessness. I'm not opposed to God, we say. I'm not hostile toward God. I'm just living my life the way I want to live it. But don't you see that right there is the problem? It's not your life. Your life does not belong to you. It's His. See, it belongs to God by virtue of creation. He created you to live for Him, to glorify Him. And it's His by virtue of redemption. You have been bought with a price. So it's His twice over. And when we take what is His and we use it for our own destructive purposes, our bodies, our time, our work, our thoughts, our relationships, our material goods, when we take what is His and we use it for our own destructive purposes, well, that deeply upsets God because you are taking something that is very precious to Him. You are very precious to God. And when you take what is very precious to God and you use it for your own destructive purposes, well, that's an act of opposition, hostility, even war. See, to understand what John is doing, you have to understand that he is setting sin in the context of a cosmic battle. Lining up on one side is Satan and all the forces of evil. And lining up on the other side is God and Christ and spirit and grace and all his saving purposes. And you see, John is saying that to commit a sin, well, that is to line up, that is to side with Satan. Look, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Whoever makes a practice of sinning 
is of the devil. It's a sin. It's just a type of Satan. I enjoy watching various TV shows, and one of the shows that I enjoyed most over this last year was the miniseries on Netflix called The Heavy Water War. The Heavy Water War is, uh, describes, uh, it's a World War II um, miniseries, and it's about Germany's nuclear arms program. Uh, the first episode sets the scene where Germany invades Norway. And when they invade Norway, they take over a small town and they mandate, uh, they increase two times the production of heavy water at this plant in Norway. Now, the Norwegians and most of them there, they have no idea that, that what they're doing in that plant is contributing to Germany's nuclear arms program. They have no idea. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the work that they are doing in that factory, it is contributing to the German strategy, and therefore they are siding with Hitler and they are siding in opposition to the Allies. And it's the same way with sin. You see, when we sin, we are siding with Satan And it is against the purposes of God in Christ. You see, when we sin, it is a declaration of war on God because God, he has declared war on sin. There's a beautiful structure to this text. And in that structure, one of the things that the structure does, it aligns the power of sin with the person of Satan. You can see this by comparing verses 4 and 5 and verses 7 through 8. Look in verse 5, we read that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. But in the parallel verse, in verse 8, it says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, the place of sin takes on the place of, uh, the place of Satan takes the place of sin. The parallel structure shows that, that sin and Satan are closely aligned. There are many ways to depict sin in the Bible. One of the ways that's often overlooked is that sin is a cosmic power that is aligned with Satan. See, in the Bible, throughout the Bible, we see that sin and Satan, they, they, they are closely aligned. I think one of the most really spine-chilling ways in which this is shown is that when we read in Genesis 2 that the serpent, that is Satan, deceived Eve and killed her, brought death. Paul, writing in Romans 7, speaking from Eve's perspective, said that sin deceived me and killed me. You see, the serpent elides into sin and vice versa. And here's what that means. It means that sin can never simply just be living your life how you want to live it. Because you are not in control. That's why Jesus in John chapter 8 says everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. You see, sin is a power aligned with Satan. 
say, but I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm under Satan's power. I don't feel like I'm, I'm aligning with Satan. You know, those Norwegian factory workers, they didn't feel like they were working for Hitler either. But they were. And you have to, you have to remember that in the Bible, one of Satan's chief works is deception. One of sin's chief works is deception. Sin deceived me and killed me. I do not know what I do, Paul says in Romans seven fifteen. Not I don't understand why I do the things I do. That's an overinterpretation. I literally do not know what I do. I am so deceived. And John writes in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Little children, let no one deceive you. Now, who has to be told, let no one deceive you, but those who are in danger of being deceived? Are you deceived? If you were, how would you know? Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Do not be deceived. We are not in control. The anorexic starts off thinking that they're in control of their diet, and then their diet starts to control them. The workaholic starts off thinking that they're in control of their schedule and their finances and their time, but their schedule ends up controlling them. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Sinful actions participate in a sinful battle. Do not be deceived. A sinful life is a life that is in opposition to God. Do not be deceived. It is impossible to be in allegiance to God and to live in opposition to God. Do not be deceived. See, to understand what John is getting at here, we have to first take seriously John's depiction of sin. But we also must take seriously John's depiction of the Savior. How does John depict the Savior? Well, look at verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And look at verse 8. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the sin destroyer. Jesus is the serpent crusher. And that's why God sent his Son into the world. Sometimes we can get this sense that The good news of the gospel, the good news is that God sent His Son into the world so that we could be accepted just as we are. And therefore remain just as we are. Sometimes we get the sense that because of the cross and the good news of of forgiveness, that that means that, that, that we can approach God and have access to God and be accepted just as we are. Now let me be clear, because of the five wounds, 
because of the work of Jesus Christ, yes, you have access to the throne of grace and you can be accepted just as you are. But God did not send his son into the world to leave you just as you are. God did not send his son into the world to die for sinners so the sinners could remain as such. God sent his son into the world to destroy the works of the devil. God sent his son into the world to destroy sin. God's purpose has been this since the beginning. When Adam and Eve in cosmic rebellion and an act of mutiny against God decided, we want to be our own God, we want to rule, we want to be in charge. And if God wasn't in the picture, so be it. We want to act as God. When they did that, they shook their fists at God in an act of cosmic mutiny and cosmic rebellion. They decided that they were going to sit on the throne as rulers. And all of us did with them because you know what? When we got the chance to kill him 2,000 years ago, we did. That's cosmic mutiny. That's cosmic rebellion. And you know what it causes? It causes destruction in our lives. Adam and Eve, they end up with broken relationships, broken bodies, isolated and lonely, and we all experience it. Sin destroys us. And God comes to his wayward children who are ruined and wrecked by the fall, ruined and wrecked by sin, and with a broken heart and great resolve, he declares war on sin. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is cosmic war, cosmic rebellion. And that cosmic war, that cosmic rebellion, the Bible, it is, uh, that cosmic war, the Bible is a story of cosmic war. It is a story of waiting for the seed. The serpent crusher, the sin destroyer from beginning to end. And in the fullness of time, God did send his son, born of a woman, born under law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. The Bible is a story of, the, of awaiting for the seed of Eve and the seed of Adam, of waiting for the seed of Sarah and the seed of Abraham, of waiting for the seed of Bathsheba and the the seed of David awaiting for the seed of Mary, the seed of God. John tells us about it with apocalyptic flair in the last book of the Bible. We read it earlier. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on the crown of her head, a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Here's the war. So that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to the male child. One who is to rule all the nations with an iron rod. But her child was caught up to God in his throne. 
And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, his Messiah, have come. For the accusers of the brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The Bible from the beginning to the end is a story of God waging cosmic war on sin and Satan. And Jesus, He appeared to take away sins. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He is... He is the serpent crusher. He is the sin destroyer. And he is uniquely qualified to do so. Look at how John goes on, verse 5. You know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. In him, there is no sin. Jesus, he is diametrically opposed to sin. So opposed that he did not commit any sin. He committed no sin. First Peter tells us, he who knew no sin, Second Corinthians 5, tells us, Jesus, he knew no sin. I mean, we don't even have categories to fathom it. Every aspect of his life, in every way, he was 100% single-heartedly devoted to God and lived in dependence upon the Spirit. He loved God fully in every way, and he loved his neighbor And he grieved over the sins of Jerusalem. But he would not stand for or tolerate sin. This is Jesus, pure and holy. And John, he wants us to know that that fellowship with the sinless one and indulgence in sin are a contradiction in terms. John, he wants us to know that we cannot savor sin and the sin destroyer at the same time. That they are diametrically opposed. They are mutually exclusive. And so he writes, verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, God's seed, the serpent crusher, the sin destroyer, abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. One commentator puts it this way, One way or another, the new birth involves a radical change in human nature. For those who have not experienced it, sin is natural. Whereas for those who have experienced it, sin is unnatural. So unnatural indeed that its practice consists of a powerful refutation of any claim to possess the divine life. Or let me boil it down by an analogy. How many of you, when you were growing up as kids, how many of you barked all the time around the house to communicate and get your way. Well, you you didn't bark because you're not a dog. By nature, you're human. That's not how you... But if you were to start barking, what would your parents say? Uh, You are not a dog. Stop acting like a dog. Speak like a human being. 
Or have you ever heard when, uh, when someone asks you to do something because you have a special talent, have you ever heard the response, I'm not a dog, I don't, I don't act on command, right? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the sense is, is that, that, well, one can, but it's, it's a contradiction of their nature. And in the same way John is saying that there is a radically new nature that happens, that God's seed, he abides in you. Verse 8, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul asked this penetrating question. Do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? Do you not realize this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you? See, I don't think we do. I don't think we do, that the one who knew no sin, that the one who did not commit any sin, that he resides in you. The serpent crusher, the sin destroyer. The Book of Common Prayer was written by uh, a reformer named Thomas Cramner. It's still used today. It's been adapted some. uh, But in large part, it's it's remained the same. And I love the baptismal vows, the vows that people say at baptism in the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer asks the candidate this question. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And the candidate answers, I renounce them. Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? And the candidate responds, I renounce them. Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? And the candidate responds, I renounce them. The Book of Common Prayer is setting baptism in the midst of this, common war, uh, this cosmic war. And it's saying, which side are you on? Where is your allegiance? And John, he is asking us the same question. And he's asking each of us to reconsider the question. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you? Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you? And do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you away from the love of God? Do you? At Wednesday, at 4 p.m., in your office in front of the computer, at Saturday morning at 9 a.m. when the kids are going crazy. Do you? So what's the answer? What's the answer to our question? What are we to do with 1 John 3 and what are we to make of 1 John 3, 6 and 9 that no one who abides in him continues to sin or carries on sinning or sins? What are we to do with this? Well, let me answer it in three ways. I think one way to go about it is to answer it contextually. John has been writing in order to encourage assurance of the knowledge of God and abiding in his love. And I don't think that what John is writing here is trying to undo what he's been doing throughout the book. And in chapter 1... He clearly says that that those who abide in God recognize their sin and they confess their sin. 
And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the atoning sacrifice, not just for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So we have to understand uh, what John is doing. And here, John, he's putting sin in this this cosmic context, and in that context, it takes on the characteristic of eschatological rebellion and defiance against God, whether you know it or not. But here's the thing. Those who run to Jesus, those who hide in his bunker, those who go to him to have their sin dealt with, well, they are not in opposition to God. They are not in eschatological rebellion. They are hiding in the Savior. But those who sin... without it grieving them, without seeing a need for a Savior, for the sin destroyer, serpent crusher to take care of it. Well, that is a sin that's in defiance and against God and His purposes in the world. So the first way to answer it is contextually. The second way to answer it, I think, though, is rhetorically. See, one of the questions that we need to ask when we read the Bible is, is not simply what do the words say, but what are the words trying to do? Right? What speech act theorists call the illocutionary force. What is, what, is the, what is the word trying to do to you? And I think that I can get at this by, by analogy. But look, at, look at like when you were at, if you were at home or at school, let's say you were at a school, and let's say in, um, you go to a new school, and in that school, uh, you go in, and, and it was normal that when you, um, when you went to the lunchroom in your old school, you, you kind of fought for your chair, and you bullied people, right? And so when you go to the lunchroom in your new school, even though everybody lines up single file and walks single file, to the lunchroom, and they take turns about who sits where. Let's say you still went and kind of fought for your space. And the principal comes up to you and they say, listen, we don't do that here. Now, clearly someone is doing that there, right then. But the point of the words is to say, that conduct has no place in this environment. And John is saying the same thing. Sin has no place in the environment of abiding in and union with Christ. We don't do that here. So I can answer it contextually. I can answer it rhetorically. But let me close by answering it pastorally. Preaching a text like this is always dangerous because on the one side, it feels dangerous to me. I, I feel a burden. And the burden that I feel is that I realize that there are two types of people in this room. There are more than two types, but there are at least two types. And, and on the one hand, there are people who have false assurance. They're in open and flagrant rebellion against God and sin, but they think they're okay for some reason. And they claim the blood of Jesus in that 
but it doesn't affect their lives and how they live, and, and they could care less if they keep on sinning because, hey, God just accepts me anyway. And my worry about explaining this contextually and rhetorically is that it's not going to have its impact that John wants it to have on you. That you need to hear it sharply. And you need to consider your calling and election and make them sure. On the other hand, there's another type of person in this room. That's the person who has a very tender conscience. Like the person I I mentioned early who wrote me. Fell in a relapse. Is now wondering, can I really, in light of John's words, claim to be a Christian? And when you hear me talk, you, even though you shouldn't, you place yourself in the first person. Even though your sin grieves you, even though it hurts you, even though you want to be done with it and you want Jesus to take care of it. And for you, I want you to know, I want you to know that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And if you go to him, you are not in eschatological rebellion. If your sin grieves you and you say, Jesus, take care of this, then, then you, are, you are siding with the Christ who destroys sin because you're bringing sin to him to destroy. Do you see? But the question is, for both of those people, what is the answer? What's the answer? And I think we read John when he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And we think the answer is to stop sinning. I'm just going to stop sinning. We hear Jesus say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we think, okay, I just need to keep his commandments more. But that's not the answer. That cannot be the answer, and here's why. Because you are not the sin destroyer. You are not the serpent crusher. He is. And John goes on to say that the one who sins has neither seen him or known him. And so the answer is not just keep the commandments. The answer is look at Jesus. Come to know him. The one who entered this world full of sin. The one who did battle with Satan in the wilderness. The one who when he was at his lowest still overcame all the deception and all the temptation that the serpent could give him. The one who took our sin, who knew no sin, who became sin on our behalf. And he took it to the cross that God might crush our sin in him so that we might become the righteousness of God. Look to him. Look to Jesus who knew no sin. Know him. And then, and then and only then, will you see the sin start to dissipate from your life. Then and only then will you gain the assurance that John wants you to have. Because it is not found in you, it is found in him. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his promised return. Look to Jesus Look to Jesus, the one from whom mercy flows. In the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen.